You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. Luke chapter 9 verse 28 to really almost the end of the chapter is a section really of transition on one hand because we're transitioning into the next portion of Luke's gospel where Jesus will leave on the road to Jerusalem and will receive much of the teaching of Christ in Luke chapter 10 and following. But here in this passage today, we're going to see first the glory of Jesus in the transfiguration, and then following that snapshot in the life of Christ, we'll see the weakness of the disciples, the the sleepiness of the disciples, the powerlessness and faithlessness of the disciples, the ignorance of the disciples, the pride of the disciples, the divisive spirit of the disciples. We'll see all of that in the verses in and following the transfiguration. But in verse 28, it says, now about eight days after these sayings, so the, the sayings really that rocked the disciples, where Jesus, after they confessed that he was the Christ, the son of the living God, he began to tell them that the Christ then needed to suffer, be rejected and die and rise from the grave and that they themselves needed to take up their crosses and follow after him. Eight days after these sayings, or as Luke puts it, about eight days after these sayings. It just seems to me in all of the gospel accounts that record the transfiguration after that moment of confession, that there was just a wait. There was just a a silence and a sinking in of the truths that Jesus was introducing to his disciples, that that the Messiah, that the Christ would suffer and die. It's just sort of for about eight days, just hanging there within the hearts and the minds of the disciples. He had just shattered their messianic expectations. And so these were likely days of extreme silence and bewilderment. And so the truth hanging there, and and it says that he took with him Peter and John and James. These were often the uh, inner circle. They formed the inner circle of Jesus's life and ministry. He took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Now, Jesus prayed daily. Jesus was in constant without ceasing prayer, but he also had appointments in prayer. There are phrases in the gospel such as when Jesus finished praying. So he had appointments in prayer. And some of those appointments included specific geographic locations for prayer. And here he goes up to the mountaintop with Peter, James, and John for a designated time of prayer. And as he was praying, verse 29, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Here Jesus's appearance was physically altered as he prayed on the mountain. Matthew tells us that he was transfigured, that his clothes became white as light. Mark tells us that he was transfigured, that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. The word there in those two Gospels 
is the word transfigured. Luke says that his face was altered. They say he was transfigured, that he was went through a metamorphosis, so to speak, a complete change of form and appearance. And so as that occurred, uh, what were they seeing is the question. What, what were these disciples observing as Jesus in prayer uh, had an altered face and this dazzling white clothing in their presence? Well, I think that it would be wrong to say that what they were seeing was the glory of God shining onto Jesus. It seems that it would be accurate, on the other hand, to say that it was God's glory not shining onto Jesus, but from within Jesus. And shining from within Jesus, outside of Jesus, and now that which has been concealed within him is now, for a moment there on the mountaintop, obvious to the onlookers. Peter said in 2 Peter 1 verse 16, he said, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then he goes on to say, you know, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And I read all of that so that you might hear Peter saying that on the holy mountain, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so so I think it's more accurate to say that he was not borrowing the majesty of the father at this moment of transfiguration, but that this was his own majesty that was beginning to shine out from within Jesus as he spent that time in prayer. Now in verse 30, it says that this other amazing event, it says, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Now uh, this is fascinating all by itself. Of course, Moses and Elijah, two major figures in the Old Testament, Moses representing quite often the law, especially as he was the author and initial recipient of it. And Elijah, sort of the preeminent and the pioneer of the prophetic ministry in so many ways. Uh, Moses and Elijah, who have long been dead and gone, if you can call them dead, they both really had actually fairly supernatural departures. Uh, Moses going to the mountaintop and dying, but then there being some kind of taking of his body by God himself. And then Elijah actually never physically dying, but being caught up to God in a chariot of fire, whirlwind kind of moment. And so uh, both of them had very different departures from the earth. And they come from the afterlife. And notice what it says in verse 31. It says, They appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, Uh, not their departure, but his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And so really what they're speaking to him of is they're speaking of his impending death, that he would exit this earth and that he was going to do it, of course, through the cross, through his death, 
his burial, his resurrection, and of course, finally, his ascension. And so they're speaking to him about his coming death that he would, and I love the word there, accomplish at Jerusalem. This was no accident, but his exodus was an accomplishment. It meant that he had defeated sin and death and and, uh, the grave. And so the accomplishment of the cross of Jesus Christ. And, and, And it just seems that perhaps at this moment, these two figures are there now to, I don't know how you would say it, but maybe this might be the right phrasing, to encourage Jesus about the moment that is to come. I wonder if Jesus could have, the, uh, could have at this moment, having lived a perfect and sinless life, you know, at 32 years of age or so at this point, 33 years of age or so at this point, if Jesus could have just simply at this point ascended to the right hand of the Father, and if the message could have been for all time, that's the life. That's the life that you must live in order to ascend to God to heaven in your own merit. But instead of ascending to heaven at that moment, Jesus, of course, had dedicated himself to going to the cross. And when he came down that mountain, the journey really, in one sense, would afresh begin to go to Jerusalem to die. And I wonder if these were encouraging words that Moses and Elijah were speaking to Jesus about. Now Peter, verse 32, and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. So Peter wakes up and he sees these two eschatological figures, you know, Moses and Elijah. He's overcome with excitement, perhaps especially highlighted by the lingering words of Jesus' coming death, you know. Maybe in Peter's mind, he's thinking to himself, oh, man, he, he, I'm so glad he got that death stuff out of his system. Look at him in his glory. There's Moses. There's Elijah. And just without understanding or knowing what he said, is what Luke records for us, Peter comes out with this idea, Lord or Master, it's so good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He just had no idea what he is saying, but that was his suggestion. You know, you're great, Moses is great, Elijah's great, let's build three tents. For each one of you. Now, as he was saying these things, verse 34, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Now, Clearly, the father makes his own estimation. He's not willing to say, along with Peter, that yes, Moses is great, Elijah's great, and Jesus is in the same category with those two figures. No, the father 
had to say as the cloud overshadowed them, the glory of the Lord overshadowed them, and, and as this voice spoke and said, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And then when the cloud dissipated and Jesus was found alone, the message from God was abundantly clear. They had come to the point of saying, you are the Christ of God. And, and, and what the Father now announces is, yes, he is the Christ of God. And do you know who the Christ of God is? The Christ of God is the Son of God. And he is in an altogether higher place than Moses, an altogether higher place than Elijah. Hear him. Listen to him. Now, this was a radical concept for Peter, James, and John, the disciples, the minds of that day to have received. To understand now this beautiful thing that that Abraham didn't have to sacrifice Isaac at the end of the day. Israel didn't really have to give their firstborns. They could just give the tribe of Levi. The firstborn was so often rejected, none of them would suffice in the Old Testament day. But God would give his firstborn. That God would allow his son to be sacrificed for the sin of the world. Here is God announcing, this is my son. The one who just told you that he must die. This is my son. My son will be sacrificed for you. Now the disciples, they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they'd seen. Actually, Mark tells us in Mark chapter 9, verse 9, that Jesus told them to be silent until a later date. And of course, Peter wrote about the transfiguration and the events on the mountaintop, but they were silent until after Jesus had ascended to the right hand of the Father. Now, Luke, in his gospel, jumps right to the next Scene. There was, according to the other Gospels, a conversation between Jesus and his disciples as they descended from the mountaintop about Elijah and the coming of Elijah before the day of the Lord. But Luke moves right into the next scene where it says in verse 37, On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, the spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Now, this is so fascinating because here you have Jesus coming from the mountaintop down into Really just an ugly scene from mountain to to valley, from from glory to obviously uh, shame and dishonor. And and what he finds here is this man who has a demon-possessed son. The man apparently had gone to Jesus' disciples who, remember, uh, uh, earlier in this chapter, had actually received power from the Lord, authority from the Lord, over the demonic realm. But apparently, they were unsuccessful with this particular case. 
And the other Gospels tell us that the religious leaders were questioning the disciples of Jesus, very antagonistic toward them for their lack of ability. But the man tells him, he says, look, I begged your disciples to cast out the demon from my son. This demon shatters him. It will hardly leave him. Uh, but they could not. They, they, they just couldn't do it. Now, now, there is a little bit of a contrast. Don't you see it there? Uh, up on the mountaintop, you have one father speaking about his perfect son. This is my beloved son. Hear him. And now you have another father speaking. And he is not speaking about a perfect son, but about a broken son. And, and so I think, at least in one sense, we, we should see a lesson here that the perfect son of God helps all of the broken sons of humanity here on earth. And, uh, you know, we, we've all experienced broken in one sense or another, even if it's just that we were born in Adam. But Jesus Christ provides a way out of our brokenness into completion and into health. Now, the disciples were powerless over this particular demon. Jesus answered in verse 41 this whole situation uh, by saying something that to me at least is slightly mysterious when he said, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? Bring your son here. You know, the question, of course, is who was Jesus speaking to at this particular moment? Was he speaking to the disciples, calling them faithless? Was he speaking to the religious leaders that were questioning the disciples, calling them faithless and a twisted generation? Was he speaking to the man? Was he speaking to the son? Or was he speaking really not to any of them, but to the culture, the society of that day and of the world in general? I think in one sense, probably what was happening was just a sigh coming from the Lord, looking around at this brokenness, having come afresh from that mountaintop, just from his heart saying, how long, how long, how long will we have to persist in this brokenness? How long until all of this is, is bound up and healed and, and done away with? And he says, bring your son here. And while he was coming, verse 42, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Fascinating phrase there in verse 43, especially in, in light of the glory or the majesty of God that Peter saw up on the mountaintop. They were all astonished here at the majesty of God. And so Jesus casts the demon out of this man. And uh, Luke doesn't record the subsequent conversation that the disciples had with Jesus. The other gospels tell us that they wondered to Jesus, why could we not cast it out? He said, at the bottom line, he said, this kind does not come out except by prayer. And so uh, they apparently weren't in that place ready to cast out the demon. But of course, Jesus had just come from the mountaintop. He was very strong for the casting out of that demon at that particular moment. And so the, the frailty of the disciples unable to cast out the demon. 
But while they were all marveling, verse 43, at, at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. Now, you remember what the father had said up on the mountaintop, right? He had said, hear him. And so now you hear Jesus saying, these are the words that you need to have sink into your ears. When the father says, hear him, here's what you need to hear. He says, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. So Jesus here reiterating, look, the, this is a divine work. I'll be delivered. God will deliver me. I'll be delivered. This is a planned thing into the hands of men. Uh, but they did not, verse 45, understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. And so uh, they, uh, this is a very important word for them to understand, the message of the cross. It's amazing how many people can read the Bible, by the way, and just sort of uh, moralize it or find various sayings or psalms or phrases that they like and appreciate uh, without reading it through the lens or the grid of the cross of Christ. And, and I think Jesus here, when he's saying this, is saying, the grid by which you need to understand everything, including scripture itself, is the event that's about to happen here. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. I'm going to the cross. And so the words, the, the hear him uh, experience there, but the disciples were apparently at this point afraid to ask, and they were unable to understand without asking and so they continued in their blindness at that point. They just didn't get what Jesus was referring to. Now an argument, verse 46, arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. You see this from time to time with the disciples. It's kind of embarrassing that they would get into such a juvenile discussion. Uh, but here again, we're seeing the weakness of the disciples. And they're arguing about you know, which one of them was the greatest, perhaps which one of them would have the greatest position when Jesus came into his kingdom. So again, the words of Christ concerning his death were not resonating with their hearts at, at this point. But Jesus, verse 47, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And he said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Uh, Jesus, when he took this child and put him by his side, he, he was doing something that really would, was a powerful lesson, especially for them. In our, in our culture, at least the culture that I'm teaching in and, and living in, you know, children are esteemed. If a politician wants to, you know, garner the favor of nearly everyone, uh, he needs to be interested in education of children. Uh, you know, we, we value our children. We love our children. And, and sometimes uh, we even uh, put our children in too high of a place and up on a pedestal and worship our children. 
So this might be missed by us because in that culture, you know, a, ch a child wasn't uh, in that highly esteemed place. Not that they weren't loved and, and appreciated, but sometimes they were looked down upon. And so Jesus here, when he takes his child and puts him by his side, he's saying, look, here's a person who you might not in your value system have a high intense value for, but I do. I love them. I care for them. And when you receive people like that, people that you might not necessarily value, for them it was this child, it's as if you're receiving me and you're receiving him who sent me. What I'm looking for, the, the greatest in the kingdom are those who are willing to not exalt themselves and argue about who's the greatest, but willing to lower themselves and receive those who uh, perhaps they might not even naturally want to receive. Now, John answered in verse 49, maybe feeling a little tinge of rebuke from Jesus. He says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. I don't know if John is just trying to change the subject or maybe trying to gain Jesus' approval even, saying, hey, uh, well, you know, you, obviously you're a little upset with us about uh, this argument we're having about who is the greatest. Well, I did see someone casting out demons in your name and tried to stop him. It doesn't say that he was successful, but he gave it an effort. And uh, because he does not follow us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. Now, this is interesting to us because it, it reveals, at, at least in part, that and, and at least reminds us that there were other followers outside of the 12. You know, when we get to chapter 10, we're going to see that there were at least 72 others that Jesus sent out to conduct ministry and to preach and, and uh, work miracles. So here, there seems to be a little bit of a let's protect the brand kind of spirit and, and let's stop Jesus uh, kind of spirit. But they, Jesus responded and just simply put the kibosh on all of that and said, no, the one who is not against you is actually for you. Uh, you need to understand that. And, and I think that this probably helps us guard against an overly censorious spirit. Uh, you know, you might have, uh, there's so many churches out there and ways of doing ministry that uh, so many of them, you know, I have very different ministry philosophies and convictions. And I'm passionate about the convictions that I hold in uh, life and in ministry. But at, at the end of the day, if they are believing in the legitimate gospel message and they're preaching the cardinal truths of scripture we might have some variation even philosophically and some of the finer doctrinal points that are out there and i need to guard against an overly critical spirit you know about the ministries and churches and people that are uh, around me it's just an important thing and uh, I think that it, this is one of the blessed byproducts of the difficulty of persecution. You know, when persecution occurs, we would never wish that 
upon anyone. But when it does, one thing that it can produce is a unity amongst the church. Some of those finer points don't seem as important when you realize, hey, listen, there are more of them than there are us. We need to stick together, love one another, support one another. And so Jesus tells John, uh, you know, the one who is not against you is for you. You need to stop with that kind of spirit. Now, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face, it says in verse 51, to go to Jerusalem. Isaiah 50 verse 7 He says that I set my face like a flint. There was a physical change to the face of Jesus at this point. A sobriety came upon him. And he sent sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now when the disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. We have the last little snapshot of our study today. Jesus is now on his way to Jerusalem. This really does actually mark a turning point in the Gospel of Luke. They try to prepare a place for him to stay in one of the Samaritan villages, but Those people don't want to receive them. And James and John, uh, they ask, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I would have loved for Jesus to say, sure, give it your best effort. (laughs) You know, nothing would have happened. But it's interesting to see the the, uh, zeal and the, you know, I don't know, quick judgment of James and John. Uh, Jesus uh, rebuked them this and turned and went on to another village. I I do find a little bit of comfort here because, well, especially uh, with what we know about John, we don't know as much about James, his brother, but we know plenty about John. And John, when you read his letters, he, he just seems to be so full of just love and grace and compassion. His letters are oozing and, and lovely. And and his and his gospel is just so emotional and you know just filled with the love of Jesus and the love of God. And here, uh, before he writes any of those things, he's asking Jesus if he's to call fire down from heaven to consume people. I just think that that uh, you know the Lord so changed John's life and worked a miracle within. And so there they go on their way to uh, another village, but the journey of Jesus uh, to Jerusalem. Let us be people of prayer as Christ prayed that we might as well be transformed, that Christ in us, the hope of glory, would change us and transform us more and more into his image. God bless you. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.